for the rest of us, would you uh, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3 and uh, we continue at our slightly better than a snail pace through the book of Hebrews and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 from chapter 3. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Let's pray. Our Father, we look to your word and we just ask that your spirit would move in our midst that you would fall upon this place and that you would enlighten our hearts, that you'd grant to us an understanding of the revelation of Jesus shown in this passage, and that by showing us more of Jesus, we would believe, and that we would walk consistent with that revelation. Father, we pray for our children and children's worship, and our desire is that this is a time in which they are, are led to abandon themselves to you, to give themselves over to you, the true and the living God, and that through this ministry, some of them will even come to know you this day. And for all of us, Lord, would you please change our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. We're all familiar with the story uh, of Isaac Newton, who uh, was uh, seated under a tree and uh, had the apple fall. And no one knows if it actually landed on his head or beside him or whatever, but what is known is that the apple fell, and his response was maybe a little bit different than what ours was. As the apple fell, he said, hmm, why did it fall down? Why didn't it fall up? Why didn't it fall out? What is it that causes things to fall down? And he began to consider this apple falling. And from that, he was able to then formulate the laws of gravitation that, that are so beneficial to us today, all because he looked a little bit more closely at a, what could have been a, a common event in his life. We're looking at the book of Hebrews. And remember, the book of Hebrews is written to first century Jews. These are individuals who grew up in the church, and they believe and yet they're facing the pressures um, in believing. They're facing the pressures, you know, do, do we then separate from Gentiles and, or do we go back just to the synagogue and we leave this whole Christian thing aside or what do we do? And so the author of Hebrews, as a good pastor, is, is inviting them and saying, no, 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 keep coming. You need to follow Jesus and beginning to show them the centrality of Jesus, that Jesus was central even in the old covenant and he's able to demonstrate that. And in chapter 1, uh, he describes that Jesus is God, 
And uh, the clearest description of the deity of Jesus anywhere in Scripture is, is, is Hebrews chapter 1, and he lays out for them, Jesus is God. And in chapter 2, he shows them that Jesus is also fully man. Okay? So Jesus is God, and Jesus is fully man. And then he starts out chapter 3 basically saying, okay, think about that for a minute. What does that mean? Right? And so he starts out by telling us, consider Jesus. Jesus, who's fully God and is fully man. Because in chapter 3, what he's going to do is he's going to describe Jesus as our mediator. And to be our mediator, he's got to be both God and man in order to mediate between God and man. He's perfect to be able to accomplish that. And so that's what he's going to be showing. So he starts out by inviting us to look at what we've seen and to remind us about Jesus. He says to consider. Consider Jesus. It's a word that means to think about, to engage your mind. So I want to invite us to spend some time considering Jesus this morning, specifically how he's revealed to us in these first six verses. And the first we'll see is that he's our Savior. And I want us to think about that for just a moment. Verse 1, therefore, holy brethren, Partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. It was in 1982 that I came across a new phrase that I hadn't heard before. In my life, I didn't grow up in the church, and I'd never heard the phrase personal savior before. And I thought, well, that's an interesting term. What in the world does it mean? And I and, uh, began to try to understand what it meant. And uh, there are several things that we can call God. We can speak of God as he's my God, right? And there's, there's a certain connotation to that, and that's a good thing. You, you want to be uh, in a relationship where he's your God. But there's an element in which you can also build a, a, a little bit of pride in that, can't you? I mean, look, I was smart enough to know which was the right God to make my God. You know, I was able to figure it out. I knew that I'm going to make the one true living God my God, so I got this nailed, right? We may speak of my Lord, and whereas that is, is a little more humble, right? Because obviously, you know, you're kind of under someone's authority and you recognize that, but, but even there, am I not saying he's my Lord? Look at my commitment. Tell you what, I'm committed that he's my Lord. I'm, I'm not just one of those on the, the outside. I'm, I'm a lordship salvationist, if you want to get into <coughs> all of that. But uh, I'm, I, I've, I've, I've committed myself. And so there's an element that can be some self-aggrandizement. Now, that isn't to say that every time we say he's my God or every time I say he's my Lord, that I've got this, this selfishness that's inside me. That's not, that's not what I'm getting at. What I want us to see, though, is that when I call him my Savior... All of that's gone. Because when I call him my Savior, I'm not calling him my helper, that he's going to assist me to make it. My Savior means that I have a desperate need that I'm incapable of meeting myself. My Savior means that I am guilty before God. It leaves me with nothing to stand on on my own. I am needy and guilty. And that's who he is. He's my savior. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. The word confession is, comes from the, the Greek word homologeo, a combination of two words, homa, which means the same, and legeo, which is, is, is word, or, or actually the, the thought and the ideas that are behind the word is, is the whole thing, logic 
comes from the word legeo, so we get that idea, and it's to have the, the same thoughts. <coughs> when I was early Christian, I'd hear people talk about this, and they'd always say it means to agree with God, and I think there's something to that, that to have the same thoughts that God has, and that's our confession. And, and what is our confession as, as Christians? What is it that we confess? To be a Christian is more than to confess that, that there is one God, right? Doesn't James tell us that even the devil believes that there's one God and he trembles? It's not salvific for him. What's the salvific confession? It's that Jesus died for my sins. That's our confession. He is the apostle of our confession. He's the high priest of our confession. I'm going to break down both of those terms here in just a moment so that we can understand them. But to recognize that he's the apostle and high priest of our confession that Jesus died for our sins. He's our savior. Let's think about what that means uh, within this context as well. It means first that he's sent by God for he's the apostle. Apostle is the, it's just a, a transliteration of the, the Greek word apostello. Um, which, which means to be sent out, technically. I love uh, Dr. Zeller would tell us a better definition, though, is sent, one sent with a message. He would always emphasize the message element of being an apostle, and I, I appreciated that. And I, I wasn't sure when I first heard it, but the more that I've, I've looked at the use of, of the term apostle, I see that's the case, and to begin to understand that Jesus is the apostle of our confession. Our confession is that Jesus died for my sins. He's the apostle. He's the one who brought that message to us. He was the one who was sent by God the Father with that message. Jesus didn't just decide all on his own, I'm going to rise up and take this message out. No, God the Father sent him with this message. Why did God the Father send him with that message? Why was it that he was sent with that message? John 6.38 tells us that uh, Jesus is not doing it all on his own. John 6, verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So it is the Father's will that Jesus would come. It's the Father's will that Jesus would be the apostle of our confession. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we, <coughs> we read the words of the, the first preaching of the gospel is, as man has fallen and God has determined that Satan has tempted him and God turns to Satan and he says, and I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed and he will bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. And this great declaration of the gospel at this point, God is promising at that point that he was going to send Jesus. He's promising at this point that there was one who had to be an apostle of our confession. That there was one who would have to come and would have to do battle on our behalf. That there was one who would come as God's representative sent from God who would be the champion who would do battle with Satan and would crush the serpent's head. And that promise is found there. And this is what Jesus came to do. The Father sent him to crush the head of the serpent. Isaiah 53 gives us even a more clear understanding of what he's coming to do in verses 10. He says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities." He was sent by the Father, and He was sent by the Father in order to bring salvation for us, in order to bear our iniquities. So that John chapter 6, verse 39 and 40, just a continuation of what we read earlier, He says, This is the will of Him who sent Me 
that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is the apostle of our confession. He's the apostle of the message that Jesus died for our sins. The Father sent Jesus as a ransom for many. He sent him to be our Savior. He's sent by God, and he's also our mediator. Because he's sent by God, he can be our mediator. He says he's not just the apostle of our confession, but he's the apostle and high priest. And remember, as we talk about high priest, first off, the the Jews who are reading this are well aware of what that means. We sometimes miss it. Remember last week we talked about the fact that a prophet represents God to the people, but a priest represents the people to God. Jesus is our representative to God the Father. The Westminster Shorter Catechism talks about uh, the responsibilities of Jesus as a priest, the two things that he accomplishes in question 25. He says, Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. That's the first thing that he does. He offers up himself as a sacrifice. Now you see, when a priest is ministering on behalf of an individual, the priest has to come with a sacrifice. For the people have sinned, and you cannot go before God without some level of sacrifice. And so he would bring that sacrifice on behalf of the people because of their sin. But with Jesus, what he did, instead of taking the the blood of bulls and goats into the, the, the Holy of Holies, Jesus took his own blood into the Holy of Holies. He took himself as that sacrifice. <clears throat> the sacrifice that satisfies divine justice. You see, every one of our sins deserves death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. The justice of God must be satisfied. He must satisfy that divine justice by taking upon himself the specific punishment due for each one of our sins. And to do that, he himself had to be sinless, which is why Jesus can be our high priest, because he is that sinless one, and so he bears that that punishment for us that he might reconcile us to God. But that's not the end, you see. If that's all that was necessary, Jesus could have stayed dead, right? But he also intercedes for us, as the priest would intercede for the people. But Jesus continually intercedes for us because he's alive. He rose from the dead. And he's with the Father, continually interceding on our behalf. This is Christ functioning as our high priest. He's the high priest of our confession. I love the words of uh, arise my soul, arise. Um, I, I won't sing, I promise. Um, but but the, the third verse in particular reminds us of this intercessory role that Jesus has as our high priest. It says, Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly speak for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. That is a magnificent thought. The idea that at any point that Jesus or anyone else were to raise any of our sins before God the Father, Jesus steps up. 
and holds out his hands which continue to bear the scars to remind the Father, I've got wounds here, I've got a wound on my side, I've got a wound on my feet. Why do I have these wounds? Because your justice has been satisfied in me. All of your wrath was placed upon me. Don't let this ransom sinner die. And he intercedes on our behalf continually throughout eternity. He takes that role. And that becomes our tremendous hope. Dare I say, what a Savior. Oh my, that He's the Apostle of our confession, that He brought that message to us, that Gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. He brought it. And He's the High Priest who Himself sacrificed Himself. And He's the High Priest who intercedes for us. He's the Apostle and High Priest of our confession. Have you made that confession? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? I want to invite every person here today to seriously ask that question. And if you have not yet, put your trust in Jesus. This is the moment. Now is the time to turn to God and say, Father, please forgive me and deal with me according to Jesus, the apostle and high priest of my confession because I believe he died for my sins. And if you do that, talk to me after the service and, and let me pray with you and, and, and help to assist you in your faith. But this is the call that we're given. What a Savior. He is our Savior. He's also faithful. Verses 2 through 6. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in El his house. For he has been counted worthy of, much more, of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. He's faithful. Faithful is a, a word that comes from the, the, the Greek root of pistis. Uh, and it's uh, the word from which we get believe, the word for faith, the word for faithful, faithfulness. All of those are, are combined in, in, in this one word. And, and the idea of faithful means he's trustworthy. It means he's earned our trust. We're coming up on 10 years uh, since this church uh, issued a call to me to come and be the pastor. Um, that'll be in, in September, and it's kind of exciting, you know, kind of completed a first decade, and, and I've been spending a lot of time thinking about the next decade, but one of the things that we talked about in the session shortly after I came um, was the idea that uh, when I came, both the, the elders and I and myself and the congregation, we, we had a level of trust for one another that was carte blanche, right? We just, we just didn't know. I mean, we, we just got to give it. You know, with, with no basis, and we're going to start out with that, that trust that is there. And it was my intention, and I said so early on, that we don't have trust that way for very long. But it's my desire to earn your trust by my life. To, to live a trustworthy life. Now the problem with that is I'm a sinner who, who still fails to always follow God's commands, and I let you down and I fail 
And so that makes it hard, but, but hopefully through the time, there's, there's an element of trust that, that for the most part we can trust. But you see, with Jesus, he's completely trustworthy. He's the one who deserves our trust, who has earned it by his perfect faithfulness. Look at his faithfulness in your life. Has he let you down? How many of us can look at our lives and say, yeah, I shouldn't have made it this far. It's just the faithfulness of God. I look and I say, it's just the faithfulness of God that I did not end up uh, either in the grave or in in a jail cell. It's the faithfulness of God that he prevented that. And that instead he brought me to salvation and has given me uh, the life that he's given. We look at our lives and we see the faithfulness of God and we remember that he has earned our trust. Verses 2 through 6 describe his faithfulness and it starts out by saying he's faithful like Moses. He says, uh, as Moses, as Moses. He turns our attention to Moses. (coughs) And the faithfulness of Moses. And as soon as he does, he says he's faithful like Moses. I'm reminded that there was a time in Deuteronomy chapter 18 in which the people were told that there was going to be a prophet like Moses who would be raised up among them. It says in verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak them uh, to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. This is a passage that was well known to the Jews. The author of Hebrews knew that it would be well known. And so as he brings up Moses and he says he's faithful as Moses was, the people's mind would have gone to this and they would have remembered, oh yeah, God said he would send a prophet like Moses, but greater. And Jesus is that prophet, think about the, the faithfulness of Moses that he, that he demonstrated. He, Moses was, was faithful in delivering God's people. Old Testament, isn't that like the key moment in the history of, of, of the Jews, in the history of the Hebrews, of the children of Abraham? Was Moses delivering them from Egypt? That's, that's kind of the pivotal point. That's, that's so central. They're constantly going back to that point. How is God faithful? God is faithful. He delivered us from Egypt, right? How is God faithful? Remember the Red Sea? How is God faithful? Remember the plagues that he brought? How is he faithful? Oh, he's faithful. He's faithful. He showed his faithfulness in Moses, and Moses was faithful to deliver the people. But not fully, right? Moses, Moses delivered them up to the Jordan but not into the promised land. Moses himself, when they got him up to the Jordan, had to climb up on a hill so he could look into the land, but he wasn't allowed to go in. He wasn't allowed to go in because he wasn't completely faithful. There was something lacking in his faithfulness. And so he was prevented from leading them in. And so his deliverance was incomplete. But Jesus' deliverance is greater. Jesus' deliverance is more. Jesus' deliverance is complete. He's more faithful than Moses. Moses' faithfulness was not enough. But Jesus' faithfulness was sufficient to build his church. It says in verse 3, For he has been counted worthy of much more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. (coughs) Has anybody been to falling water? Right? Wow, okay, just us? It's awesome. (laughs) 
It is really, really beautiful. It's not very far from here. About maybe, maybe three hours. Um, and uh, we, we've been there a couple times. So this uh, couple, the Kaufmans, um, said to Frank Lloyd Wright, we want to build a house and we have this land and we've got this beautiful waterfall. We'd like you to build the house down at the bottom of the waterfall. And he looked at him and said, no, I'm going to build it on the waterfall. To which, to Frank Lloyd Wright, you say, okay. And so he does. And you see what, he, what he's done and, and the magnificent brilliance of this. If you can look closely, you would see that there's kind of a stairway that comes down. So it comes right down to the waterfall and there, there's a kind of uh, window-ish stuff that you can open up. And so that the, as the, the river is running, the river kind of creates a little bit of uh, um, evaporative cooling for the house. And so it becomes very cooling. But can you also imagine how peaceful it would be to just roll that up and listen to the water roll by at night? Oh my, what a magnificent building. But you know, without the builder, that building doesn't exist, does it? We don't remember it apart from Frank Lloyd Wright. He built it. It came from his mind. He deserves much more glory than that building. That's the picture that we're trying to, to get as, as he talks about um, the builder of the house. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God enters into the covenant that he makes with David. <clears throat> and David wanted to build a house for God, and, and God said, did I tell you to do that? Saying, you're getting a little bit ahead of me. So then he turns his attention, and he says in uh, verse 12, when your days are complete, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. <clears throat> when you look at various prophecies in, in the Old Testament, it's not uncommon that a prophecy will have a uh, near or immediate but partial fulfillment. And this is one of those. The immediate fulfillment of this we see is in Solomon. Solomon was raised up after, after David uh, lay down with his fathers, right? And Solomon becomes the king. And what does Solomon do? And God establishes Solomon's kingdom, and it's a magnificent kingdom, right? But what, is, what does Solomon do? Solomon builds a house for God. Okay, so there's a temporary. But you remember what Jesus was called? The son of David? And so what did Jesus do? Jesus built a house for God, did he not? And didn't God establish Jesus' kingdom forever? Yeah, so it's fully fulfilled in Jesus. And so we see Jesus in building that house for God, which is the church. We read about that in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Starting at verse 19, remember he's writing to Gentiles. And he says, So then you, who are Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Think about that. That's the believers from the Old Covenant. Fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. That household that Jesus is building. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. <clears throat> you see, he's telling them, Moses is a part of the building. 
Jesus is the one who built it. Jesus is the builder of the building. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18? I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's Jesus who's going to build his house. Jesus is going to build that church. Jesus is faithful to build his church. He is faithful. What a Savior. Our Savior is faithful. That's Jesus as we're considering him. But you know, we can persevere is our next point of hope. Verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. You know, theology should never be theoretical. I've heard, and I'm going to ask Leona, there's such a thing as theoretical mathematics. Is that right? Yeah. Makes no sense to me. But, but there's such a thing, and it's okay. I guess there's such a thing as theoretical physics, right? Right? There's no such thing as theoretical theology. Theology has to be practical. Talk with seminary students at different times, and, and one of the things I had to learn after I got out of seminary, one of the mistakes of seminary is that the degree that most will pursue is a master of divinity. And the problem is you get out of seminary and you think you master the divine. And, and yeah, you know who laughed the loudest was the, the man here with the Master of Divinity. <laughs> because once you get in the ministry, you realize, oh my goodness, what you learn in seminary is the absolute bare minimum to begin learning the theology you need. You just have this, this understanding of the formulation of phrases and ideas, but you, you haven't necessarily seen what it means. You can talk about the sovereignty of God, but you understand the sovereignty of God in that moment that you're in the hospital with a couple whose two twin babies have just died. This is now theology. And they're looking up to you as their pastor saying, is there any hope? What's your theology now? And that's got to come out of your heart, not just out of, out of a book that you have learned. Because theology must not be theoretical. Um, Joel Beakey, in uh, the preface to The Christian's Reasonable Service, four-volume systematic theology, my favorite systematic theology Um, I never thought it was possible, but it's a systematic theology that you could read as a devotional because of the idea of experiential theology, which is at the heart of it. And Joel Beakey writes about that, and he has this to say. And Wilhelmus de Brackle wrote during the Dutch Second Reformation, so that's why he's mentioning this. He says, Thus, the preaching of the Second Reformation emphasized experiential theology which M. Eugene Osterhaven has defined as, quote, that broad stream of Reformed teaching which, accepting the creeds of the church, emphasized the new birth, the conversion, and the sanctification of the believers so that he might acquire an experiential or personal knowledge of Christ's saving grace. That is theology. That's the real 
theology that we need. I believe that that's the theology at the heart of the author of Hebrews. So that the author of Hebrews is not solely concerned with a proper formulation of theological statements. He's presented to us Jesus as our Savior. He's presented to us Jesus as faithful. But those ideas left alone are, are not, nece- not, not where the author wants to land. The author wants to land and say, you need to know that He's Savior. You need to know that He's your Savior. You need to know that He's faithful so that you may hold fast. So that you can hold fast. So that you can persevere. You have to know it so that you can continue. Excuse me. How do we hold fast? How do we persevere? We persevere as we remember God's promise. Our endurance is directly tied to God and His Word and the promise that He's given us. Notice verse 6. He says, uh, But Christ was faithful as a son over His house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Our confidence. The Jews had a confident boast. A confident boast that was based in the promises of God. And these are our boast as well. Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, the Jew, the Hebrew, would be able to look at this and say, and this is my boast. In Genesis 17, verse 7, God said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And the hope is that God is promised to be my God. He is my God and I am His his disciple. I am His follower. I am His child. And the Jews would cling to that. The key is that He is my God. And I know that to be true. In Exodus chapter 19, entering into the Mosaic covenant, God said to the people, uh, His people at the, the foot of uh, Mount Sinai, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So you see what the hope, what the confidence of God's people was, is that we are the people of God. That is the hope of us, that we are the people of God. So much so that David, when he was getting ready to face Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17, remember what he had to say to Goliath. It says in verse 45, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the armies of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. What was his boast? What was his confidence? It was that we are the people of God. It was that I am a child of God. That is my boast. That is my confidence. That is my certainty. That is my hope. And that is the promise of God. You may run into your life and run into people who question your value. Who question your worth. Frankly, it may be that person who looks at you in the mirror every morning. 
when those questions come, I invite you to say, I belong to Jesus Christ. This is my confidence. This is my hope. You think I have no worth, but God viewed me as precious enough that he would send his only son that I might be redeemed and be with him. And you can stand against that as it comes to you. Temptation will come to you. And what is it that temptation is demanding? Every time it comes, it's saying, get relief now, right? Feel better now. If you give in to the temptation, you'll feel better now. And God says, trust me. COVID cough is gross. It's, it's going away. As we face that temptation, to be able to say to it, I belong to God. I don't have to seek relief right now. I don't have to have it this moment. I can wait, and God will do that which is good for me. He will strengthen me that I need not follow the temptation. Hold fast. He's your God. He promised that He's your God. And you know the, the, the second way that we can persevere? The first is by remembering God's promise. The second is remembering that you do believe. Sometimes we struggle. Sometimes we wonder. Sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we forget that we do believe. But you do believe. That's why the author of the Hebrews starts with verse 1. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says to the people, therefore, he could have just said, therefore, consider Jesus, couldn't he? But he, before he does that, he reminds them of who they are. He says, therefore, holy brethren, holy brethren, holy, you have been set apart and you are brothers, and he's already talked about you are brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. He has set you apart to holiness. This is who you are. You do believe. And then he says you're partakers of a heavenly calling. Doesn't Paul say something like that? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've received? We've been called to heaven. God has called us. And when God called light out of darkness, what happened? When God called Lazarus out of the tomb, what happened? When God calls us with a heavenly calling, He's going to accomplish that. And we just need to remember that we do believe. And let me just say, one of the things that's important to me as, as a preacher, and I have to remember this, and, and some preachers will preach to their congregation as though their congregation don't want to follow God and their congregation doesn't really believe. And so they have a tendency to kind of harangue and, and, and to demand. And um, One of the lessons I learned early on was to remember what is at the heart of every believer? Hint. It's belief. You do believe. I believe that every one of you, at your truest part of your heart, you trust Jesus Christ and you love him. Sometimes you just forget. Sometimes I just forget. And we've got to remember, I do believe. I am a holy brother, a partaker of a heavenly calling. I can hold fast. Isaac Newton responded differently than I would have. 
I imagine myself sitting under the tree and the, the apple falls down and it hits me on the head and lays beside me and I probably would have said something like after going, what the? I'd, I'd have said, oh yeah, what the 2020? Anyway, I'd have said, look, an apple. And I'd have gone on with life. That would have been the entire effect that it would have had on me other than the bruise for a day or so, right? That's it. Nothing. Some of you I know would have gone, oh, look, an apple, right? But I don't eat wild food, so it has to come from a store the appropriate way. But anyway, um, but, but you would just go ahead and, and eat that apple and, and everything's the same, right? I think sometimes it's easy to do that with Jesus too because he's everywhere, right? I mean, really. We're reminded of him. And sometimes it's easy to just say, oh, look, Jesus, and go on with life. The author of Hebrews said, no, no, stop. Consider Jesus. Think about this. As significant of a change in human history that Isaac Newton, considering the apple, has brought to us, landed on the moon, much more significant if you and I will stop and consider Jesus, that he's your savior, that he's faithful, and you can persevere. Let's pray. Lord, you're you're awesome. Thanks. Thanks for your love. Thanks for saving us. Thanks for being faithful. And we trust you to strengthen us that we may indeed persevere. Father, I pray for this congregation. I pray that you will bless her, that you'll expand her territory, that you'll keep your hand upon her with all the power of your spirit, and that you will keep us from all evil, that we may be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.